So, um, start that recording, Stephen. Right. You unmuted me, everything's good? All right. Okay, so we're going to start in Numbers chapter 15. And uh, if you didn't get one last time, la- about three weeks ago, we took a little detour, which I seem to be notorious for, uh, a detour off of our books of the Bible study. And we kind of started Numbers, and there was just so much going on in Numbers. Again, Numbers, the book of warfare, the book of being numbered for warfare, because the Christian life, when you get saved, God counts you now to fight the good fight of faith. And uh, we got through so many of the beautiful pictures that the Bible has for us in the book of Numbers. Uh, If anybody wasn't here three weeks ago, uh, we have some extra copies of the outline of the book of Numbers. Just raise a hand and uh, Eli will grab you one of those. Uh, If anybody needs one, um, just raise a hand. Eli will get them to you. And uh, I have extra copies of those as well. Again, we gave them out three weeks ago, but if anybody needs them, it's just an outline of every book. So we're going to continue with the the Bible pictures in the book of Numbers. And we're going to jump and we're going to start with chapter 15. And I probably should erase this. Um, Chapter 15, we finished this first section, right? We said the book broke down into two nice little divisions. 1 to 19 is Israel going from Sinai to Kadesh. And from 20 to 36 is Israel going from Kadesh to Jordan when they're about to enter the promised land. And we looked at all the pictures from chapters 1 to 14, Let's jump into 15, and 15 is uh, the laws for entering the land. The laws for entering the land. Now you say, why is that interesting that God would start chapter 15 with these laws for Israel about to enter the land? Well, what this says to us, brethren, is that there is the promise of hope, even in the midst of failure. You say, what does that mean? If you look at the end of chapter 14, if you look at verses 40 to 45, that generation that came out with Moses has just missed the promised land because of unbelief. God said, you guys are not going in. You're going to wander for 40 years. You're going to die in the wilderness. And you would think that God would just leave them to stew there. But if you look at verse 1 of chapter 15, in the very next verse, after that judgment has been passed, after Israel's failure, the Lord starts giving them laws for when they re-enter the land, as God had promised. See verse 15.1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye become into the land of your habitations, which I give unto you. That is amazing. Would you think about this? They've just failed. They've just been given a judgment from God that your younger generation, you're not going to get in, you're going to die in the wilderness. And God starts in the next breath and says, When you come into the land, here's what I want you to do. You know what that says to me? That your failures and your lack of faith don't nullify God's promises. Just because the younger generation wasn't going to get in, the other generation was going to get in. God's word was going to be fulfilled. Just because they didn't get in, it didn't mean God had failed. It didn't mean God had dropped the ball. They were just going to face the judgment of God, but His promises were going to still hold true for whosoever was willing to believe. Amen? Hey, I know Calvinists have a hard time with this. If you watch it from home, all right, it must have been destiny that you're watching. But anyway, listen, I don't know. 
Just because somebody else doesn't trust Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean the next guy won't trust Jesus Christ. Just because we go to these fairs and maybe somebody rips up a track and says, I don't want that stuff, or they chase you off their porch, that doesn't mean the next guy won't get saved like the Apostle Paul and be a mighty one for God. God's words never fail. It's just looking for a willing heart and a believing heart. And even among the brethren, just because, I'm going to point to the microphone stand so I don't upset anybody. Just because this guy over here doesn't believe the promises of God, that doesn't mean they won't work for you, right? God's just looking for somebody to believe. And look at verse number three, right? The Lord sees past their failures to when the second generation will enter the promised land. It's hope in the midst of failure. There's always hope. And in verse number three, he says, and when you get in there, he says, you're going to make an offering by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice and performing a vow or in a freewill offering or in a solemn, in your solemn feast to make a sweet savor unto the Lord of the herd or of the flock. You know what that says to me? They've just failed. They've just messed up. He says, when you get back into the land, don't forget what pleases me. When you fail, God, you know what you got to get back to? You know what you got to be reminded of? What pleases God that he will bless? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Free will offerings. Give something to me, and it'll be a sweet savor. He tells them that when they've just failed, and he tries to get them back to the basics. When you mess up tonight or tomorrow, you know what you got to do, guys? Get back to the basics. What does God want? He wants sacrifice. He wants my son. He wants me to be like his son. He wants me to give something to him, even if it's just my will. And you know what? That's a sweet savor to God. Amen? That's Numbers 15. Let's look at Numbers 16 now. Number 16 is a great chapter. Number 16 is the rebellion of Korah. All right? And uh, let's look at it. Number 16, let's look at verse 1. As we watch number 16, let's think about some of the key elements here, which are going to be some of the key ingredients of rebellion among God's people. You say, really? Rebellion among God's people? Oh, you have no idea. All right, number 16, 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the sons of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and again said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy." every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. You see that? You, you, if you've been around church people at all, you'd be like, wow, that sounds familiar. <laughs> because um, just notice in verses 1 to 3, some of the key ingredients here of rebellion when it happens among God's people. You see verse 1 and 2? Please notice that it says at the end of verse 1 that Korah took men. Please notice that rebellion always takes other people down with you. When you rebel, you're always going to take somebody else with you. It seems to spread here among at least 250 people are mentioned here. Princes, this thing was like a disease. That spirit of rebellion, when it creeps into your heart and makes you start running your mouth, it'll spread like a cancer. It'll spread like a plague and you'll wind up bringing somebody else down with you. It happened right there in a blood-washed people that had just come out of Egypt. 
You want to see another thing? Verse number two, or verse number three. Uh, look at the middle of the verse. Ye take too much upon you. Can I say something else about rebellion? Not only is it going to take people down with you, you know what else it's going to do? It's always going to hide behind pure intentions. It's never going to show, hey, I want the attention. Hey, I just want to run this. Hey, I think you're a jerk and I want you out. I want to be on the top. No, it's always going to be, oh, you're doing too much. You're asserting yourself. You got some pride, brother. How come all of us can't rule and, and govern this thing? How come you get to be the one? It's always masquerades in these pure and pious intentions. And just mark this down. The person that has the problem with the person behind the pulpit and says that that person's got pride, that person's got pride, the person that's hung up on somebody else's pride is usually the one that's hung up on his own pride. I've learned that from some bitter experience, that the person, oh, that guy, pride, 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 pride. If that's all you see is pride, 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 you might be looking in the mirror and seeing that you got some pride in your own heart. You just got to watch. I'm not saying anybody's above falling, but somebody that's always, a, oh, well, well, I don't worship man. I don't worship man. You're just following a man. You're just following a man. We're all following somebody. We're supposed to follow the people that are following Christ. But the people are, oh, no, I don't follow a man. I just follow Jesus. Yeah, I know who you are. Yeah, yeah, sure you are. You're following yourself. You got a pride problems. You know, watch the people that sound overly pious, amen, overly pure. They're the ones that you got to, like, hold on to your wallet, back away from, because they're the ones that are probably puffed up. And then the last thing I see about rebellion here, at the end of verse 3, he says, Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. You know what rebellion is always after? It's always about power. It's always about power. It's always aiming to undermine maybe God's man or God's elders or the system of God's authority. In this case, it was Moses, right? In a church, it might be pastors and deacons. Whatever system God has put in to be the authority, the Adamic nature hates it. And the Adamic nature does not want to be subject to authority. So they'll make up all these excuses about, well, how come you get to be in charge? That's what it's all about. You're seeing that in your culture today. All this quote-unquote justice that people are fighting for is about one thing, power. And some people want the power. And once they get the power, they'd probably be just as tyrannical as the people they claim are in power. Because man wants the power. And this whole thing here is about power. Rebellion is so much about power. Look at Jude. Turn to the back of your Bible. Jude. Give me at least one amen or else you're going to... All right. So some of you are ready to stone me. I was like... Jude, Jude 11, Jude 11, Jude 11, uh, right before Revelation. Now, Jude is a little book, it's just got one chapter, so I'm saying Jude verse 11, and look what it says in Jude verse 11, here's what it says, woe unto them, he's speaking about, if you look over verse 4, He's speaking about certain men crept in other unawares, guys that would creep into your fellowship, guys that would creep into your churches, guys that would creep into your assemblies and try to turn things upside down and lure people after themselves. And he says of them in verse 11, the number of destruction, by the way, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. So right there, 
God defines the rebellion as gainsaying. That Korah was just basically gainsaying. You know what gainsaying is? Just break the word down. Saying for gain. Gainsaying, right? So he gets up there and he tries to sound all pious. Oh, you take too much upon you. All the people are holy. That's all hot air. Korah was the Holy Spirit nails him against the wall and says, you are contradicting Moses to help yourself. You made it sound like you were for the people and you were really trying to hook yourself up. You were trying to gain something by saying all this stuff. The Holy Spirit just knows how to like strip away all the stuff and just reveal what your true intentions are. And notice, please, in verse 11, do you see the company Korah keeps in this verse? (laughs) Right? Cain, he's listed in the same list as Cain. You know what the Bible says about Cain? He was of that wicked one. He slew his brother. Why? Because he was self-righteous. That's not good company to keep. And then he mentions Balaam. Balaam, that false prophet who wanted to get paid and was willing to destroy God's people so he could get paid. God puts Korah in the list. You know what that tells me about Korah? Korah was a self-righteous fool who was willing to run over anybody to hook himself up because he's in the same list as Cain and Balaam. So watch out. When that rebellious spirit rises up, as right as they might sound, if they're going to be rebellious, the Bible says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. When there are problems with me or leaders or other people in the church, there's a way to do it right. There's a way to handle it right. But when you are doing it the wrong way and claiming you're doing it for the right reason, you're wrong. It's never right to do wrong to do right. I'll say that again. It's never right. You're writing it down. It's never right. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. I'm kidding. It's never right to do wrong to do right. You say, well, I got a problem with this brother. And then you go gossip about him all over the place. You might have been right about the brother's problem, but you just revealed you're wrong because you're doing it the wrong way. Right? If you really had a problem with a brother, you'd go to that brother face to face, you'd handle it, and if not, you'd grab an elder and you'd handle it, and if not, you'd get a bunch of people and you'd handle it, and you'd be as charitable and merciful as you could with that brother's problem. But when you splatter it all over the place and run the bus over that brother or sister and then claim to have the moral high ground, sorry, you just revealed your hand, you tipped your hand, you're wrong. You're a rebel, and rebellion is wrong. All right, let's keep going here. Chapter 17. Sorry, I didn't mean to get on a thing. All right, chapter 17. All right, chapter 17. Go to uh, Numbers 17. It's all in the book of Numbers, right? All the book of Numbers is, it's about getting you for battle. It's about getting you ready to fight this good fight of faith as soon as we walk out those doors and you wake up tomorrow and do what you got to do. Numbers 17 is about, right, 17 is about Aaron's rod. And Aaron's rod reveals God's choice for the priesthood. It's about God's choice for the priesthood. Who gets to have the access to God that Korah and his boys were griping about? Number 17, you're going to look at verses 1 to 5 now. After the rebellion, God is going to settle it, right? So everybody had their hubbub. They had their little rebellion. God opened up the earth and swallowed up all those rebels and took the fire and wiped them out. And then God says, just in case you need me to show you who my choice is, here it is, number 17.1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and take of every one of them a rod 
according to the house of their fathers, of all their princes, according to the house of their fathers, 12 rods, right? One for each tribe, got it? Write thou every man's name upon his rod. So there be Reuben's rod, Naphtali's rod, Asher's rod, Simeon's rod. I'm not going to try to pretend and remember all 12 of them, but right, all the, all the 12 tribes, each one got a rod, and Levi rod for Aaron, right? And thou shalt write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi. For one rod shall be for the head of the house of their fathers. And thou shalt lay them up in the tabernacle of the congregation before the testimony where I will meet with you. And it shall come to pass that the man's rod whom I shall choose shall blossom and I will make to cease from the murmurings of the children of Israel whereby they murmur against you. So God's going to settle it. See, how does he settle it? Well, look at verse number eight. And it came to pass that on the morrow Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloom blossoms and yielded almonds. Aaron's rod was chosen, and the tribe of Levi was chosen as the priestly tribe by God. How? Because Aaron's rod brought life from the dead. See how God made his choice known? He said, here's a dead stick. The one that blooms tomorrow is the one that's my choice to be the mediator between God and men. Hello, do I even need to preach that next point to you? Or can you see it? The one that rose from the dead is God's choice to be a mediator between God and men. The Bible says God hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained in that he hath given assurance to all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Amen. Jesus Christ rising again settles it once and for all that God's choice to get to him is not Mary, is not the Pope, is not the rabbi, is not Father McGillicuddy, it's not the shaman, it's not the Buddhist monk, it's not me and it's not you. It's Jesus Christ. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And if that sounds hateful to you, you need to read your Bible. Because the Bible is very particular that there is one way to God and God made it clear by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in verse number 10, you'll see in verse number 10, the Lord said unto Moses, bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels. And thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. Aaron's rod was kept as a token for anybody that wanted to be rebellious once and for all that Aaron's tribe and Aaron's line was the eternal, was the priesthood that he ordained. And Jesus Christ empty tomb for all of us to see and look back to is God's smile and God pointing a finger at the rebellious heart of man that he's the way. And you can't get there on your own. Because when you die, you're going to stay dead. And when your religious mojo dies, he's going to stay dead or she's going to stay dead. One came back from the dead, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, chapters 18 and 19 deal with the water of separation and the red heifer. It's about uh, sanctifying the Levites and getting the people ready and, and, and getting separated and consecrated by the ashes of a red heifer. And it's really about, in these chapters here, as we close out this section, it's really about these offerings for the nation of Israel. It's really about how 
Could somebody get cleansed if they got polluted by a dead body? Now, hang with me for a second. Write this verse down. Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 to 14. Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 to 14, talks about this. And you might have passed over this in your reading while you were falling asleep, reading Deuteronomy and all those weird laws and stuff. But it says, if a man is slain outside the city, the elders go into a rough valley and offer a heifer to cleanse the pollution of that dead body. You follow it? A man is slain outside the city, and you have to go into a valley, the elders go into a valley, and they offer a red heifer, or heifer. Follow it now. Jesus Christ was a man who was slain outside the city Jerusalem. And you know what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation? The elders of Israel are going to go through a rough valley, and they're going to turn to God, and they're going to offer this red heifer in the Tribulation and signal their desire for the Messiah to come. It's all right there in the book of, uh, book of Numbers. All right there. And uh, it's a great picture of what Jesus Christ is going to do for the nation as they get ready for his reception. So that closes this first section, all right? 1 to 19, Sinai to Kadesh. So I'm going to erase this, and I'm just going to write up here the second section. Are we good for the second section? All right. 20 to 36 is Kadesh to Jordan. This is them getting ready for the promised land now. Now, I want to make two comments before we dive into our pictures. You're going to find something in the latter part of the book of Numbers. That the closer you get to God's place of blessing, the bigger the problem has become. The closer you get to something big for God or something big God wants to give you or a big victory God wants to give you, guess what? The bigger the problems are going to be. You're going to see that in the latter part of the book of Numbers. It also teaches us this, this latter part. The closer you get to the promised land, the more closely you've got to pay attention. Because you're going to see guys like Moses miss out big time. Why? Because they didn't pay attention. You know, when you're first saved, you can make a lot of mistakes and God has a lot of grace with you. But when you've been saved 5, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, and you know better, God expects you to pay attention to the details. God expects you not to just gloss over things you might have not known 25 years ago. And, and you're going to see the closer we get to victory, the more closely you've got to pay attention to the Word of God. And let's start with chapter 20, which is a great illustration of this, right? It's the sin of Moses. I mean, if anybody's going to be an illustration of paying attention to what God said, it's going to be Moses right off the bat. Now, I'm not going to flip back to go to Numbers 20, but in, uh, actually, yeah, let's go back to Exodus 17. Let's go back to Exodus 17. We could, we could flip here. Exodus 17. I'm cruising here. Exodus 17. Exodus 17. All right. Josh spoke about this a little bit at family camp. Exodus 17, verse 1. The Bible says, Exodus 17, 1, And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? 
Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto these people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people and take with thee of the elders and of Israel and thy rod. Please note that. Moses, take your rod wherewith thou smotest the river and... Uh, take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Please, please notice, if you're taking notes or paying attention, that after Egypt, Moses was commanded to smite the rock with his rod. The same rod that he had smit the waters with, that he had poured the Red Sea with, that rod of judgment. Okay, now go to Numbers chapter 20 again. All right. Let's look at this, this scene now. Let's try to take it from verse 7. <clears throat> Numbers 27. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod and gather the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. Interesting, the rock is a his. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses, now watch this, took the rod from before the Lord. That's the rod of Aaron that had been laid up as a testimony. Right? Go back to Numbers 17. The rod of Aaron was laid up before the Lord in the tabernacle as a testimony. Moses takes that rod, keep reading, right? Um, as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, you rebels! Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, or a second time, because he'd already smitten it once, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast drank on uh, their beast also. Please notice that out of frustration, right, and anger, because that's what happens, right, moms and dads? Out of frustration and anger, Moses smote the rock a second time with anger. Aaron's rod, the rod of the priesthood. He's breaking a lot of types. Now read on in verse 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, um, because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Wow. God takes his types very seriously. I mean, Moses is now up in years now, man. This is probably, he's getting close to 120 years old. He's been with these people for years and years and years. He'd stood up to Pharaoh, and you might say he did this one little thing and says, that's it, you're not going in. Because Moses didn't pay attention to the details. Moses didn't pay attention to the pictures and the types of his word, and Moses should have known better. So God said, you should have known better, Moses. You're not going in now. And I'm telling you, man, he takes his types very seriously. And brethren, if you're learning the Bible, you better learn to pay attention to it, man. You better not just breeze through it. And when God opens your eyes to something, you can't pretend like you're asleep anymore. 
right? It's, it's okay to not know things in the Bible. I'm with you at the front of the line. But like Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the parts that I do understand. And when there's things that you do understand and you sin and you disregard and you don't pay attention to the things you do understand, you can't plead ignorance with God. He's going to keep you from a place of blessing. He's going to keep you from a victory because you're not paying attention to what he has revealed to you. And the scary part is when you don't pay attention to what he has revealed to you, he's under no obligation to reveal anything else to you. And I'll be honest with you, that scares me. The, the thought of God turning the lights out on me and not giving me any more light makes me want to obey what I do know. Because light rejected becomes light removed. And when God shines the light on something and says, hey, brother, sister, this is for you, and you say no, don't expect the lights to come on for the next thing you ask God about. you got to, the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more. He gives you a little more light. He gives you a little more light. And the, right, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And you just follow the light God gave you. You know, why is God so upset about this type? Who's the rock? That's Jesus Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 4. And that rock was Christ. Not anybody else. Certainly not Peter. Certainly none of the other disciples. Jesus Christ is the rock. And in Numbers 20, 11, that smitten rock is a picture of the crucified Christ who is smitten by God the Father. How many times? Once, for all, forever, amen? No more. Never to be repeated. Never to be reenacted on that thing you call an altar. Once, for all, forever. The Bible says Jesus Christ died one time. And after that happens, after that cross, after that Savior had been smitten, what do you got to do? Verse 8, all you got to do now is speak to the rock. Amen? See that? After the cross, you just speak. What does Hebrews tell us? Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love our prayer meetings. All we got to do is just sit there and talk to the rock. And we don't have to reenact his death. We don't have to do the stations. We don't have to flagellate ourselves or beat ourselves. Praise God, it is finished. And all we got to do now is take that rod of the priest and speak to the rock and you get all the water you need from the living waters of Jesus Christ. Praise his name is, is that. That's a blessing right there. But Moses was banned from the promised land for breaking God's type. And you want to change his words? And you think a better rendering would be? And you're going to go to the Greek and tell me what you think God said? I, you know when I see people do that, I just want to step out of the way. Because I'm waiting for lightning to strike those people dead. Thank God God is more gracious than any of us. Because if I had control of lightning bolts, this is probably a half a Matawan to be wiped out right now. Amen? I mean, it's like, forget, about, forget about concealed carry. It would just be open lightning, right? It would just be all over the place. But um, man, Moses smote the rock with his rod, the rod of judgment, right? He says, take that rod of judgment, smite the rock. But Moses in Numbers 29 was supposed to speak with Aaron's rod, which was the rod of priesthood, right? That rod of access, that rod that says Jesus is the way into the holiest of all now. But he blew it, he broke the type, and he's banned from the promised land. Woo! But look at verse 11. I want to show you something blessing at the end of verse 11. It says, 
even though Moses messed up, the water came out abundantly. You know what that means? Moses' failure does not negate God's faithfulness. Thank God that even though Moses messed up or I mess up every other second, guess what? God is faithful and God takes care of His people even when the leaders screw up like I will screw up every day or you as a dad might screw up or whoever screws up, a mom screws up. God is still faithful to give His people what they need even though Moses had to face some consequences. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go to Numbers 21 now. Numbers 21. That's the sin of Moses. Now let's talk about the serpent on a pole. All right? Let's look at Numbers 21. This is a glorious, glorious picture of Jesus Christ dying for our sins. Amen? Numbers 21, look at verse number 4. And they journeyed from the Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, neither is there any water. Wah! And our soul loatheth this light bread. We want the one with all the calories. We hate all this light bread. The people, what are they doing? They're again complaining. That is a sorry trend among the saints. You read through the book of Numbers and it's complaint after complaint after complaint after complaint. If there was a crown for complaining, I think all of us would have a lot to cast at the Savior's feet. Verse number 6. So what does God do? God says, all right, you want to complain? I'm going to take my hand away from you. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. So the Lord sends fiery serpents to bite the people. Why? Because you're easy prey when you complain. When you get in that complaining spirit, that's all you see is what you're complaining about, and it's easy for the devil to just take a bite right out of you. Verse number 7. So now they're dying. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. That's a blessing. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. From which we get the great hymn, I think it's page 195, Look and live, my brother live. Look to Jesus now and live. It is recorded in his word, hallelujah, it is only that you look and live. So to be saved, these sinners had to look with faith upon that serpent on a pole. I'll go to John chapter 3. I know you know these verses, but let's look at them again. John chapter 3. This is a type so great and so important that even Jesus Christ himself looked to this type to show you what his death was like on the cross. John chapter 3, verse 14. It probably took some faith to look at that serpent of brass on a pole. You'd be looking for like the the acurochrome, those of us who grew up in the 80s know what acurochrome is, or the uh, antiseptic, or the whatever this is, or, you know, the neosporin, or something or other. He says, look to this serpent of brass. It had to take some serious faith, because that would be like, what is that going to do? Like, what is faith in Jesus going to do, right? Like, the world looks at that and goes, that's what you want me to do? I thought I had to do these steps and turn over a new leaf and try this ritual and put this this stuff on my head and turn around three times and cross my heart, you know, once to die, you know, all these things you got to do, right? Blessed be the fruit of the loom, all that stuff. And you know what? God says, no, I want you to look to the object of your sin. I want you to look at that serpent on a pole 
and you'll be saved by faith. Now look at John 3, 14. And as Moses, the same way as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ, be lifted up. That whosoever, there's that problem for the Calvinists again, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I was reading this today and I thought to myself, does it ever hit you? You have eternal life today. Like you're never going to die as far as God is concerned. They may put that box in the ground and they may say, you know, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Like we went to my wife's aunt's uh, graveside ceremony yesterday and she was a great saved lady. No, I know she's in heaven right now, Angela Tyrone. I definitely know that. Got to hear all these testimonies of folks in her church talking about what a blessing she was. I felt like it was a woman I didn't know. All these blessings about things she did and ways she served that people never saw. You know what? They put her body in the past that said ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But Angela wasn't in that box. Angela was more alive than ever. As far as God is concerned, Angela would never die. Amen? And you have eternal life if you know Jesus Christ, if you've done these things. Now, keep reading now. Um, So Jesus Christ himself points to this glorious type of his death on the cross. And there's two truths that I want to point out that we learn from this. First one, Jesus Christ became a curse on the cross. You understand he was lifted up in the place of the devil himself? He was lifted up as a serpent. The devil is called a serpent. He stood in the place of the devil and faced the repercussions and the punishment of all that wicked one's devilment. That's an amazing thing. You ever read in Psalm 22? We don't have to flip there. But Psalm 22 is written about a thousand years before the cross. A thousand years before anybody knew what crucifixion was. And Jesus said, they pierced my hands. The Spirit of Christ speaking through David says, they pierced my hands and my feet. We love that verse. But there's this other verse that he says in Psalm 22 where he says, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. That's the Spirit of Christ talking about the crucifixion a thousand years before it happened. And that Spirit of Christ says, you know what I'm like on the cross? I'm like a worm, a serpent on a pole. You want to tell me the Bible's written by dumb shepherds in the Middle East? You go on believing that. I know who wrote this Bible. God wrote this Bible. God put this book together. Go to John chapter 16. Go to John chapter 16. Somebody who was standing over time was the one who wrote that Bible. Someone that saw the end from the beginning wrote that Bible. John 16, 11. What a book, huh? What a book. Uh, Brother Pete met somebody today and said, what's your church about? And he said, well, we just try to follow the Bible. I mean, it sounds... I know arrogant and maybe like a little bit obnoxious to say that to people. And I know a lot of people are trying to maybe, but we're just going to give people the Bible. He had told the guy, we have no frills. We have no frills. I'm sitting here next to a fake tree, like standing over here. There are no frills, right? It is the Bible or bust. It's the word of God or else. And uh, if you get enough of this book in you from the book of Numbers, you'll be able to go out there in the wilderness and fight. That's what this is about. John 16, 11. Look what it says there. Jesus Christ is talking about of judgment because the prince 
of this world is judged. That devil's was judged when Jesus Christ stood in his place on the cross and took the punishment for all his devilment. Think about that. God paid the price for the devil's devilment. You know what that means? You can't accuse God of anything. He took all that upon himself so that you could be forgiven as a free gift. Don't be, oh, why is God so mean? And why do bad things happen? And why is there evil in the world? He took all of that upon himself so that you could be justified as a gift. Right? God is clear. God is clear when he is, ju- when he is judged. Right? And you know what else? This, that's the first truth. That Jesus Christ became a curse. Here's the second truth. Sin always starts with dissatisfaction with what God has given you. Because if it's just like the serpent, right? If it's like a serpent getting bitten, right? What happened to the people in Numbers? They were dissatisfied. What happened to Adam and Eve in the garden when the serpent sunk his teeth into them? They were dissatisfied. They had all God's bounty, but they wanted that one tree. Right? They, they weren't satisfied with what God's given you. If you sat here today and you stopped your complaining and I stopped my complaining and you wrote a list of all the things down that God has given you, you'd be able to keep going until now until the cows come home. But you know what the devil gets you hung up on? That one thing that God hasn't given you and he'll strip your wheels and spin your gears on that one thing. What about that one thing? And that's where sin starts. You think David couldn't have had any woman he wanted in the kingdom? But he wasn't satisfied with what he did had, but he saw that one looker on the top of that roof taking a shower, and he said, "Mm, mm, I want that forbidden fruit. And that's where sin always starts. That's how it started in the garden. That's how it started right there. That's a great illustration. Let's go to Numbers 22. I'm moving right along here. The last ones are going to go quick. Don't worry. Some of you are like, there's so many chapters left. I know, I know. But now let's talk about Balak and Balaam. All right, those of us who are teachers are acutely aware of the time. I'm trying my best here. Uh, Numbers 22, 6. So Balaam and Balak. Let's go back to Numbers. Numbers 22. Numbers 22. All right. Now, 22, 6. Balaam is the king of Moab. And he hires a prophet, Balaam, to curse God's people, Israel. See Numbers 22.6, he sends a message to uh, Balaam and he says, Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me, this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail that we may smite them and that I may drive them out of the land. For I what that he whom thou blessest is blessed and he whom thou cursest is cursed. So Balaam had a reputation and Balak wants to hire him. But if you go to Numbers 24 and uh, you jump down to verse number 10, right? Actually, uh, Numbers 24, let's jump to verse uh, 5, actually. Numbers 24, 5. It's a great thing here. This is Balaam starting to prophesy now. He's trying to curse them, and God just kind of overpowers him. And here's the prophecy that comes out of his mouth. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel, 
as the valleys are they spread forth, as gardens by the river's side, as the trees of lying aloes, which the Lord hath planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. He shall eat up the nations of his enemies, and shall break their bones, and pierce them through with his arrows. He couched, he laid down as a lion, and as a great lion, who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together, and Balak said unto Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast all together blessed them these three times. See, Balaam could not curse Israel. And he keeps blessing Israel, blessing Israel. You say, why? Because of the Abrahamic covenant. Because of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, he said, I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. God promised Abraham, blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. And Balaam just couldn't even get the curse out of his mouth. You know why that's a blessing? You know what that teaches us about us? How many attempts by the enemy to curse you are thwarted without you ever knowing it? You know, Israel's sitting down there in the valley having some manna hamburgers and manna cheese fries, and they're having all this manna stuff, watching a manna movie at the manna drive-thru. You know what? Balak is up there on the hills, and Balak's trying to curse him, and God is protecting them for all that. You know how many times the enemies tried to knock your car off the road, or kill your children, or like ruin your church, or mess up your health, or do something to, to hurt you? And God said, no, 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 not his time. No, 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 not our time. And he's protected you, so the enemy couldn't curse you because you're safe in the arms of Jesus. That's a blessing. But you know, you know Balaam, though? Balaam wanted to get paid. Mama wanted to get paid. Daddy wanted to get paid. So he said, you know what? If I can't curse them, I know what I'll do. Go to Numbers 25. Here's what he did. He said, you know what? I can't get God to curse them. But if I get Israel to sin, God will have to judge them. Pay me. (laughs) And that's what he figured out. Numbers 25. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat and bow down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. See that? Balaam wanted to get paid so bad, he just figured out a way to get them mixed up into the Midianites' uh, Baal worship. And then God would have to judge him. And therefore, he got paid by Balak. You say, what they do? Verse 18. See 18? It says in verse number 18 that Israel had been beguiled. See that word in verse 18? They were beguiled. They have beguiled you in the matter of Peor. Now, historically, that's Israel. They got beguiled. Beguiled always has a very lewd connotation that I won't repeat in mixed company. It has to do with people joining themselves in a way that they should never be joining themselves, especially with the enemies of Israel. But you know what? Go to 2 Corinthians 11. We could spiritualize that beguiling because in Christ you're safe 
As long as you follow God, the enemy can't curse you. But God's judgment can fall on you when you step out of the will of God in this life. Amen? God can give you a little spanking, a little chastening, a little, uh, little problems. He can really upset your road when you step out of His will in this life. How do we get beguiled? You know who else said they got beguiled? Eve. The serpent beguiled me. You know Eve is a picture of? The church. The bride of Adam, like you're the bride of Christ. She got beguiled. You can get beguiled by the enemy. See, 2 Corinthians 11.3, God uses the same words, not by accident. Here's Paul's warning, but I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He's saying, don't be deceived by the devil like Eve was. Don't let your mind get messed up. He says, how's my mind going to mess up? How did Eve's mind get messed up? Words. Words. Questions. Thoughts. Words. Those things start playing out in your mind. You better watch them. You better watch your daydreaming. You better watch what you're entertaining. You better watch the voices in your head right now that are saying things to you. You better make sure which ones are of God and which ones are not of God and throw the ones down that are not of God and affirm the ones that are of God. You say, how do I tell? Get God's words in your head and crowd out the weeds of the devil's words. See, go to Colossians chapter 2. Let me show you its words. Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse number 4. Colossians 2, 4. <clears throat> the Bible says this. Colossians 2, 4. And this I say, lest any man should, oh, there's that word again, beguile you with what? Enticing words. You think the devil had a pitchfork in the Garden of Eden? Absolutely not. He looked like Jesus. He was transformed into an angel of light. He looked like the Son of God Himself, or as close as you could. So, look at verse 18, 18, same chapter 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. He's saying, man, if you allow yourself to be beguiled, you're going to lose something special. He says, watch out, you might lose your reward, verse 18. Don't get suckered by some seducing word, saints. You better hang on to these words. You better watch all the media that you're filling your mind with because it's a lot of noise that's trying to distract you. You know what we're warned to do in the Bible? We're warned to watch out for the influence of Balaam in our lives and in our churches. You want to write the verse down? 2 Peter 2.15. 2 Peter 2.15 talks about the way of Balaam. You know what the way of Balaam is? It's the recompense of being wrong. It's a false system. It's a false way. There's a lot of people out there that don't care that they're wrong. This is my religion. This is what my grandmother taught me. This is what my uncle taught me. This is what my parents taught me. And they think they're going to get some kind of a reward for being wrong. Even if you show them the Bible, oh no, but this is what I believe. No ma'am, no sir. There is, there's a bad reward coming for being wrong. It's called hell. All right. Do not want that. 
right? God says, watch out for that. Here's another verse, Jude 11. Jude 11 warns us against the error of Balaam. The error of Balaam. You know what Balaam's error was? That he thought he could get paid for doing wrong. That's not a false system. That's a false service. Those are false works. Those are works that God would never reward. The world might, but God's never going to reward. Watch out for Balaam's influence in your life. And thirdly, thirdly, and this is the one that's going to bite, pardon the pun, all right? But uh, Revelation 2.14 talks about the doctrine of Balaam. He warns you against the doctrine of Balaam, and he says the doctrine of Balaam is the religion of offering the wrong thing. The way of Balaam is the recompense of being wrong. It's a false system. The error of Balaam is the reward of doing wrong. It's false service. And the doctrine of Balaam is the religion of offering wrong. It's a false sacrifice. It's false worship. It's eating things sacrificed to idols. That's the doctrine of Balaam eating things offered to idols, partaking in those sacrifices, thinking that eating something sacrificed somehow imbues you with some kind of spiritual or supernatural power. God says, that's the doctrine of Balaam. Stay away from it. Watch out for it. It brings the judgment of God. And just in case you were wondering if God wrote the Bible, he warns this to the church of Pergamos in the book of Revelation. The church of Pergamos All those churches line up with church history. That lines up with about, Church of Pergamos is around 500 A.D. Do you know what was instituted in 500 A.D.? The Roman Catholic Church introduced the Eucharist in 500 A.D. When you believe you are eating something that will imbue you with spiritual power. We were all there. I was there. I'm not hating. I'm just telling you the truth. Be very careful. The Bible says watch out for that. That introduction. You know what this word Pergamos means, by the way? Much marriage. It's when two things were joined together that have never should have been joined together. Like Israel joined himself to Baal Peor. Like many people join themselves to the sacrifices of the dead every Sunday. And God says, that doesn't bring my favor. That brings my judgment. Watch out for it. You okay with that? Did my lens crack? All right? Okay. Are you sure? All right? And you know what this practically says to us? You know who Balaam is? Balaam is your minister who cares more about getting paid than preaching the truth. We've got a lot of Balaams out there today, right? There's one down there in Texas who smiles real funny, right? Um, let's keep going here, all right? Let's keep going, all right? The next chunks are short and very short. We're just going gonna, gonna to fly through them, okay? All right? We're going to do 26 to 30 and then 33 to like 36 in one chunk. So 26 to 30 is, uh, is the second generation now entering the land. And it's all about the preparation for going into the place of blessing. It's all about that preparation you can get to finally step into that place of victory that God has for you. You say, what does that mean? Well, you can write these things down. Chapter 26. Chapter 26... The children of Israel get numbered again because it's a new generation. 
Miriam has died off. The last of the last generation has died off. And now the next generation is going to go into the promised land. You know why? The first one failed. The second one was going to be established. That's a principle in the Bible, right? Your first birth will fail you. Your second birth will establish you into God's favor, right? The first generation dies off. The second generation will go into the promised land. You know what you get in chapter 27? Chapter 27, you get a new leader. Joshua is appointed. He's appointed to replace Moses. That new generation needs a new leader. Why? Because the first leader could not take them all the way to God's blessing. Moses is a picture of the law, and the law cannot take you all the way. It can only take you so far and no further. But Joshua, who's Jesus, he'll take you all the way. He'll take you all the way into God's place of blessing. Amen. 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 And then verses, uh, chapters 28 to 29, are all about the offerings and the feasts. Seems like a little bit redundant. God starts talking about the, the feasts and the offerings. You say, why does he do that? Because this new generation with a new leader has got to be faithful to the old paths. See that? God doesn't tell them anything new here. He tells the new generation, here's how I wanted you to worship me. And all you young guys and old guys, and we have our Mel Sabakas that are in heaven now. You know what they would scream from heaven if they could? Seek the old paths. Walk therein. And as this people about to enter the place of blessing, there's no new thing under the sun. God says, just keep following me the way I told the old boys to follow me, and you'll get to the place of blessing. And then chapter 30 is all about vows. It's about vows to the Lord. You know what that says? That says you got to keep your promises to God. Right? You want to get to the promised land? You're going to need a new generation, right? A new birth. You're going to need a new leader. You need to follow the old paths. And you're going to have to commit. Commitment is the key to victory. You might get saved by calling upon the Lord, but you don't get victory over things in your life unless you put some commitment to your walk with God can't be an inch deep. You've got to get in, like we said on Sunday. Now go to 31. Go to Numbers 31. We're almost there. I promise you. I promise. Numbers 31. Almost out of the desert. Don't worry. Numbers 31. Now, God lays all this out. Can I erase my chicken scratch here? See Rachel for the notes, or, or, or Kim, right? Because mine are like not worth even shooting. Um, God lays it all out. But in Numbers 31 and 32, two and a half tribes want to stay back. They don't want all God has for them. Sister Patty was talking about praying this week about, last week about getting all God has for her and just like not being content. That was a good prayer. I think it probably provoked the message we spoke on Sunday, probably your prayer uh, and that supply of the Spirit. You know what? We shouldn't get content. But these guys got content. Reuben... Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said, I, I don't want to cross over Jordan. I'm, we're okay right here. You see in Numbers 31, verse 8, there's a great battle. They go to battle in Numbers 31, 8, and it says, and they slew the kings of Midian, 
Beside the rest of them that were slain, namely Evi and Rechum and Zur and Hur and Reba, five kings of Midian, Balaam also the son of Baar, they slew with the sword. So they finally killed that false prophet in Numbers 31. And there's this great battle. And the Midianites, a great enemy, are defeated. And uh, Balaam is slain. And much spoil is taken. They're doing good. And then Numbers 32 comes along. And then Numbers 32, here's what happens. Verse 1. Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle... The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spake unto Moses and to Eleazar the priest and unto the princes of the congregation, saying, Adaroth and Dibon and Jazer and Nimrod and Heshbon and Eliela and Shebam and Nebo and beyond, even the country which the Lord smote before the children of Israel is a land for cattle. And thy servants have cattle. Wherefore, said they, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a possession, and bring us not over Jordan. Their whole life had been building to crossing Jordan. Everything about the wilderness was about crossing Jordan and going into the promised land and the place of blessing. And they're like, nah, I'm good. I'm okay right here. Why? They wanted to stay behind because they liked their stuff. I'm really comfortable with my cattle. I don't want to have to leave all this stuff and go over there. And I got to challenge you, saints. What does this world offer that you'd want its cattle over all God has for you? I mean, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, right? This is supposed to be the bounty of God. He's going to promise you. You've been waiting 40 years for this. Now, these, these stinky, smelly, flea-bitten Cattle is where it's at, God. <laughs> this is where it's at. I'm content right here with these stinky, nasty, fat, large cattle that stand around and do nothing but swat the flies off their butt. This is what I want, God. This is what I want. I am happy. Right? That, God uses that to make you feel silly. Because God says you're sitting here with some stupid, stinky thing that you won't let go of. And God's like, I got all this stuff for you. It challenges us. You can't be satisfied with your spiritual growth. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep fighting. You've got to keep pressing. Crossing Jordan is what your life is all about. Getting to where God wants you to be. And then the last few chapters, and we're not going to even look at any verses, 33 to 36 is uh, final advice for the fight, I call it. Final advice for the fight. If numbers is all about warfare... No way anybody could read that. Final advice for the fight. What do we got? Well, let's break it down. What do you need for the fight? If, if you're going to cross Jordan and get to the promised land, you've got a fight on your hands, right? So in 33, we've got all the journeys of Israel, right? God says they went here, and they went there, and they went this way, and they went that way. Why does God do that? What is God showing you there? That God knows where you've been, and God knows where you're supposed to be going. So if you're going to get in this fight, you know what you need? You need God's direction. That's Numbers 33. And then Numbers 34 is the land divided. He finally divides up who's going to get what. You know what the shame is? So many people will never see that land 
because they perished in the wilderness. You know what happened to a lot of the people? They lost their vision. And they lost sight of God's reward. They lost sight of what God had for them. If you're going to get in the fight, you need God's direction and you need God's vision of that promised land that He set aside just for you. Then you get to 35. 35, we've got the cities of refuge. We'll talk more about that when we get in the book of Joshua. You know what the cities of refuge were? These cities that if you were like, let's say you were cutting down a tree and your axe head flew off your axe and killed your neighbor and they wanted to bust your head open, you could run to one of these cities and find refuge and they couldn't exact their vengeance upon you because you didn't mean to hurt the guy, you just made a mistake. You know what the city of refuge was? It was a place of mercy. Because if you're going to make it to the promised land, you know what you're going to need along the way? You're going to need some places of mercy because you're going to make some mistakes. Amen? You're going to mess up a little bit and you're going to find some place where God can give you some mercy because you're going to make mistakes even though you didn't mean it. You're going to step on somebody's toes or do something wrong and God said there's going to be some cities of refuge for you. And then finally, we get to Numbers 36, last chapter, and we get the rules for inheritance. It's the daughters of Zelophehad. Hope that's how you say their name. And they say, well, what about us? What if somebody dies? And like, what happens to our inheritance? And God lays out some rules for inheritance. And he ends the whole book of warfare, the whole book of numbers, talking about their prize and what they're really fighting for. See, that's why I call this the final advice for the fight. God ends it by saying, you ready to fight? You ready to go into the promised land? You need direction. You need to catch a vision. You need some of God's mercy. And you need to remember the prize that we're really fighting for. Why have you been journeying this whole time in the wilderness? And finally, go to Deuteronomy. Not starting next week's study. Don't worry. Right? But I want to give you three, and I'm not going to make much comment on them, three big ideas that we could take away from the book of Numbers. We spent two long weeks on them, although they were separated by a few weeks. But two weeks breaking down all these beautiful pictures. Why? Because you're in a fight, brethren. And I hope you take something from these pictures here. I hope it's not just a lovely song. But here's your first big idea from the book of Numbers. Number one, Deuteronomy 1-2 says, There are an 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir, unto Canish by Nair. This whole book of Numbers was an 11-day journey. It took them 40 years. 11 days! Took them 40 years to make it to the Promised Land. It could have lasted them 11 days. The first big idea is, how long will it take you to go get all God wants for you? How long are you going to wander and waste your time in the wilderness? That's the first big idea. Second big idea. If you're being numbered for war, right, and you're in a fight, well, what messed them up in the book of Numbers? Why did that generation miss? Because they had no faith. The word was not mixed with faith. So if you're in a fight, brethren, always remember it's the fight of faith. 
It's the good fight of faith. The challenge is for you and I to believe God. Always believe God. I think William Carey said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. We have such a small God and small expectations and such little faith. God says, if you believe me, you can mentor into the promised land. So which one of the spies are you going to be? You're going to be like the majority that made God very small and the giants very big? Are you going to make your God very big and the giants very small? The key to this fight, it's fight the good fight of faith. Amen. Amen. And third big idea, and finally, out of all that came out of Egypt, think about this, two million people maybe, right? Out of all that came out of Egypt, Caleb and Joshua are the only ones that make it into the promised land. See, what's the point, Pat? Most Christians wander around when they should be at war and they waste their lives. Not every Christian listening in tonight will get all God has for them. Not everyone watching at home will get all God has for them. I know it's going to be a small few, but I'm preaching to all of you, get yourself in that minority. Because a lot of Christians waste their lives wandering in the wilderness when they should be fighting the good fight of faith and engaged in spiritual warfare so they could get all God has for them. I hope that's you tonight, brethren. I hope you're challenged to believe God to go get all God has for you. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer.